The God of Mischief is back and better than ever. Loki. 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 Wow. Great to see you again. Critics agree. Loki season two is marvelous. Great. And it's finally here. How much do you know? Let's assume I don't know much. A mind-bending adventure. Spectacularly cinematic. I've been waiting for a moment like this. It surpasses all expectations. A little over the top, don't you think? I thought it was spot on. Loki Season 2. Now streaming only on Disney+. Plus. You are listening to Habs and Minded. Brought to you by HabsEyesOnThePrize.com. Hello and welcome to another episode, and it's a dramatic episode. We just finished the, the Mark Bergevin uh, press conference. Uh, I'm here with an all-star lineup today. Let's start with the all-star through, through June, really. Matt Drake, welcome on to the pod again. Thanks for having me. Well, you, you were running the show for, for more or less the whole of June yourself, so uh, we're happy to, to be part of your crew nowadays. Uh, we also have Jared Book. Yes, I'm here. For, for, once, a, for once, for once, Sweden is not outnumbered by Montreal. Yeah, uh, that's as, what as we say every time out. there, too, too. But, <laughs> and then obviously, as mentioned, uh, Anton Rossegård from Sweden. Yeah, exactly. We need to have balance. At least, you know, uh, at least 50-50 with the Swedes so that we can get some, yeah. you know, sane takes from people who aren't into the Montreal frenzy. And uh, I'm uh, still at my... Uh, old place or more Mrs. Seb's place because uh, we're looking for, for a new house and uh, hopefully we get something sorted next week. So this might be the last podcast I record from, from, from uh, Kungsbacka. Anyway, um, we just, as I mentioned, we just finished Mark Bergevin's uh, press conference. There were one big thing coming out of it. There were actually two big things because uh, we, we have to say uh, to start it all with, with something positive. Jonathan Duran seems to be doing very, very well and uh, should be back with the team come preseason. That was the happy news, wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I, I don't, you know, it, it's so hard because we don't know what the issue is. We don't necessarily want to know. We want it to stay private because that's how, every, you know, Jonathan Duran, the Canadians want it to be. But yeah, any, any news that um, was an emphatic Yes. You know, it wasn't like a wishy-washy answer from Mark Bergevin. It was, you know, he will be part of the Canadians. We expect him here the first day of training camp. Uh, was is great news for, for Jonathan and for the team. And also that it was more the fact that uh, he is in a happy place. He's ready as well. Came out down during the, the, uh, the press conference. Anyone, anyone else that wants to, to pull in something from Jonathan Duran here? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm a huge fan of Jonathan Drouin. I think everybody knows that. I've I've written tons of articles about him. I'm super happy to hear that he's coming back. I mean, I I kind of thought that with everything that happened, he was kind of primed for the expansion draft there, and he might get taken. But I guess, you know, it it seems like they really focused on trying to keep their cap hit as low as possible to make other moves. And I'm glad because honestly, I think maybe that break is what he needed. Again, I don't, I don't want to speculate about what it was, but Philippe Dano made some comments that kind of made it clear that it was like the pressure of being a Quebecois player on the Montreal Canadiens. We don't know, and it doesn't matter. All that matters is, you know, he's going to come back, and uh, I, I think he's going to be in for a big year uh, because of it. I think that break might have been good for him, you know, mentally, physically, everything. Uh, and I, I think we'll see the best version of Jonathan Dubois next year. Yeah, I was setting up a sniper like Cole Caulfield. Yeah, I, I was going to say that. I think I, I think it would be, uh, you know. Jonathan Duran would be primed for a good season just because there are more players now that can just, you know, step in so that he doesn't have to, he doesn't have to perform every night the way that he needed to when he first came to Montreal. So with more skilled players around him, maybe Jonathan Duran doesn't have to play like up to, well, 18, 90 minutes a game. Maybe he can more be more of a role player and just do um, the offensive bits. Maybe, maybe you can actually combine his line in some way so that Jonathan Duane can just focus on being the creative force that he has the potential and always have had the potential to be. We're leaving yeah. Jonathan Duane there. We, we, I think that it's, it's really uh, the good place is that Jonathan Duane seems to be in a good place and will be able to join the team. Anything that, that comes out that way 
is a is, is it something very good, especially after a long break. But but the big news was as Mark Bergevin um, spoke during the press conference about Shea Weber, he has had several injuries: ankle, foot, knee, thumb. Even missing a practice for him wasn't an option. He had a he has a lot of mileage. He won't be back next season, and he probably won't be back for his career. That is a really tough statement and some really terrible news. I think that any player deserves the right to go out the way he wanted. And I think Shea Weber in some ways did. He fought to the bitter end. And, and it also puts everything in perspective at that. Normally, you go to your goalkeeper and give him a hug or two after you've gone out of the playoffs. You collect your teammates that way, especially maybe in, in a... Uh, Stanley Cup final but here the whole team went to Shea Weber first and we might understand why right now yeah I mean I I think he knew about it before the playoffs to be honest after the news came out that he was facing these injuries and that his career might be in jeopardy my first thought was I think he knew about it and that's why he pushed through those injuries because he wanted to get that one last chance at winning a cup and uh, you know I'm kind of gutted for him that he didn't manage to get it but uh, you know, you saw, like you said, everybody going straight up to him after the game and hugging him. I, I think he knew about it. And I think he pushed through all that specifically because he was trying to get that one last feather in his cap. Um, just gutted for him. Uh, but at the same time, there's not a whole lot you can do. I mean, he has to take care of his health before anything. So we can't expect him uh, to continue doing that, to continue playing through these injuries and risk his long-term health uh, just to try and go for, uh, you know, maybe another run in the playoffs. So it's, it's unfortunate, but, you know, heck of a career for him. Yeah, you know, it's, you, you really get to know and, and see what Shea Weber means to everybody in this organization, right? Like, he, if you think about it, he, he read uh, Cole Caulfield's name in the draft, right? So he'll always be linked to that moment. You know, yeah. the, the, culture, the culture of the Canadians is so much a part of, of what this team is. And a lot of that goes to what Shea Weber brings. And, you know, there, there were, you know, it's hard to measure intangibles, obviously. It's not something that's, that's you know, that's why they're intangibles. You can't measure it. But this team, this organization, regardless of what Shea Weber does on the ice, is, is stronger because he was a part of it. And, you know, there were people who were rolling their eyes at that maybe. And, you know, there are people, probably the same people who rolled their eyes when, when the trade happened in the first place. But uh, at the same time, you, you can't argue what what she will bring it's, it's kind of like carrie price in the sense that even if carrie price is not playing like carrie price he's still carrie price back there and it gives everyone kind of like a jolt of everyone plays you know two three inches a little taller when carrie price is back there and i, I think that shea weber kind of brings the same the same thing to the organization uh, and you know especially to forwards and, and the rest of the defense it's also the fact that that what mark bergman has said quite a few times is um he comes in first, he leaves last, he's always there. He puts the bar high for everyone else to, to step up to as well. And, and uh, a lot of it is character. And, and I've always asked different coaches what character is to them and everyone has a different answer. But something that always comes back is that first in, last out. It's a bit of a cliche, but I think in, in Shea Weber's case, it really is that. He is there. He lives and breathes hockey. And, and uh, it sets an example for many players to, to try to achieve. You look at his, you know, maybe not league-wise uh, awards, et cetera, et cetera. But he has been a stable of one of the top defenders in the league for quite a long time. Yeah, and we, we can't forget that he's he's turning 36. So he, as you said, he has a lot of mileage. Um, and and we, we've seen that in, in the way he plays. You can see the his passion for hockey is obvious and he wants to he, he wants to play as much as possible. But you can see like it's difficult for a 35, 36 year old body to be out there for 25 up to 30 minutes a night sometimes and just perform and perform and be that leader every night for 82. If you go far in the playoffs up to maybe a hundred games in a season. Um, and it wouldn't be surprising. It's not surprising now to hear that his body has taken a lot of damage because of it. I'm just wondering like what he's planning as his next move, because Obviously, if he gets put on LTIR to like protect 
um, well, mostly Nashville from from getting that huge um, bounce back from from like his cap hit. Um, I'm just wondering like what what he will do with this time because obviously it's noticeable that he wants to be doing something in hockey at least. He he's such a model citizen for for the game of hockey i'm just wondering if he wants to come back in some sort of uh leadership role uh for the canadians or or for the nashville predators yeah that's really... i'm uncertain how much of a role can he have if he is on limited reserve exactly. that's that's the I question think. yeah we, we i don't think with jonathan francais and i think it is in sweden and he's he's still being paid by detroit right and he is has nothing to do with hockey for, for different reasons as well, because he has a, a terrible concussion syndromes, but, but for a fact it's, it's uh, he has stayed completely out of hockey. And I don't know if he can sign up for, for, you know, being part of the NHL program or if he can co-host an NHL show or anything when you are on limited reserve. Yeah, I don't think that if he's on long-term injured reserve that he can actually get into a coaching role. I could be wrong about that. But I think the more likely scenario is Montreal would ask him to to retire if he's not going to be able to play, if this is really the end of his career. It would be Nashville who would benefit the most from putting him on LTIR, if anybody, mm-hmm. right? Their cap recapture is somewhere just above $4.9 million if he retires right now. And for Montreal, it's just over 500000 So for Montreal, the, the hit is negligible if he retires. Whereas for Nashville, it really hurts. So that's where... Yeah, and especially the last two years, it's going to be 12. Well, yeah. it, it depends when he retires. So exactly in, in Nashville's case, it might actually help them if he retires now rather than retires in two years. Because basically the recapture recaptures that, you know, 25 or so, a uh, little under 25 million. And it splits it amongst the years where he's no longer playing. So <laughs> it, it, that's why the last year it's 24 million. Uh, so, <laughs> you know, it, it's in Nashville's case, you know, if you want to, you know, bite the bullet, it might be better off to do it now. But yeah, I, I think that from a Canadian's perspective, I think that you definitely want him around uh, if he's willing to, right. If you just wants to hang around in, in BC which is obviously his right to, then, you know, I, I think it'll come down to that. I, I don't know if he but wants Canucks to Canucks be... might need uh, someone of his statue as well around his, there. No, they, they only hire old Canucks though. <laughs> they, they don't, they don't hire anybody else. <laughs> Although Trevor Linden is a former Canadian. So I guess you can kind of go from there. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's, it comes down and who would have thought that the Philadelphia Flyers offer sheet of Shea Weber might come back to haunt Nashville 10 years later on. <laughs> If anybody should get the recapture penalty, shouldn't it be Philadelphia, though? I mean, they're the ones that wrote the contract. I'm kidding, by the way. Obviously, Nashville, <laughs> Nashville agreed to it. But yeah, I mean, the, the whole point of these the, these recapture penalties and, and Luongo, you mentioned Vancouver. They, they already have one with, with Roberto Luongo. But the, the point of these recapture penalties is because the, the cap hit and salary was so drastically different in those long-term deals at the end of the contract, it, it gives, it's, it's a way to claw back some of that benefit if the player doesn't actually play those final years. So that, that's the point. That's the reason behind these, these penalties. Yeah. It's to stop them from circumventing the cap by having a big, long deal that a player is never going to be able to fulfill. Right. For example, you sign somebody until they're 50, obviously they're not going to most guys anyways, <laughs> unless you're Yarmir Yager, you're not going to play until you're 50. Right. <laughs> So they put that in specifically, like you said, to make sure that, you know, guy retires early because obviously he's going to, uh, because the contract was so long, then they don't get that benefit of having the AAV spread out. So it, it makes sense. And uh, it's, it's it, like you said, Patrick, biting the bullet for Nashville, it's not going to be fun for them no matter when they do it. So as Jared said, it might be better for them to honestly do it right now. At least it's 4.9 instead of, you know, I think it goes over six if he, if he retires next year and then it's nine and then it's, 12 minutes 24 so well what do you guys think like would nashville be <clears throat> sorry would nashville be willing to uh, to uh, trade an asset to to get weber back and put him on ltir i, I don't think i so. think i don't think the, the, the only reason i say no is, is because it's going to be up to shea weber right is shea weber is going to decide whether he wants to retire or whether he wants to stay on ltir so you know i don't think being part of the national predators is going to make that choice any different. Um, but obviously, maybe, you know, they can pay him 
an ambassador fee or something. But I mean, then again, you know, does he want to be in Nashville? It, it, it's there's a lot of factors here. Uh, but but Shea Weber is gonna you know decide what he wants to do. I, I don't know. It's not a case where you know teams are gonna be start you know trading for Shea Weber's cap hit. You know, like like they did Chris <laughs> Pronger and other guys, right? So I, I don't think that's gonna be the case because you know if Shea Weber wants to retire, he's gonna retire. Right. If he wants to stay on LTIR, it, there's no benefit for Montreal to necessarily trade that contract um, compared to somebody else. Right. So it, it, it's it, it's a tough situation, obviously, you know, it, on the person, Shea Weber, um, first and foremost. So it, it'll be interesting to see. But I think the decision comes down to him. I don't think whether he's part of the Predators will make the decision any different. I think that I think... If, if if Montreal gets anything back, and by that I mean like a draft um, draft pick, it, that that would be a a something symbolic. I don't think it would be you know we're gonna go with this player and that player for for you recapturing or, or being able to to sort out your your cap problem. Uh, I think it will be something symbolic if if there is a trade with Shea Weber. And then it will be, you know, a third round pick or something just in order to to facilitate that trade to be Montreal is not just giving it up for free. Yeah, you're, you're not getting like a blue chip prospect or anything. It, it'll be, like you said, something symbolic, but I could see it happening because the benefit is, again, as Jared said, not with Montreal. It's all for Nashville. It benefits Nashville. So they would have to, like, obviously the decision at the end of the day is Shea Weber's, but Nashville would have to approach the Canadians and approach him and say, okay, are you okay with coming back to Nashville and we put you on LTIR and you don't retire? And then the Canadians will probably take whatever they can get. So like you said, something symbolic, third round pick. I don't know. I could see it happening though, just because they're, they're if they want to compete anytime in the next five years, they can't afford to have 4.9 million of, of just dead cap on somebody who's not playing. You mean like Minnesota? Yeah. <laughs> sorry. Too soon? Too Uh-oh. soon? Uh, <laughs> so, sorry to any Wild fans out there. Um, yeah, it's... it's. Um, I mean, like, for me, Weber has always been this decisive guy. I'll be honest with that. And I think I've been honest about that because I remember him in Nashville taking Henrik Sederberg's head and, and slamming it with his hands into the glass. Uh, in the dying seconds or even after the game was finished. Um, he has obviously been a leader in Montreal. He hasn't shown any tendencies to do something similar again. Uh, it might have been a spur of the moment. But what are your favorite moments of, of Shea Weber um, in Montreal? For me, it was the first game that I saw him play as a, as a Montreal Canadian. And, and it's not about just see, being there. It was it was a game against Toronto, and I, I think it was, I think it was the game. It was the game where he um, had that really iconic fist bump. It might have been one of his first goals as a Canadian. And what I remember most, and what I'll always remember, is just the the anticipation of the crowd every time the puck went towards him and he lifted his stick for that one timer. And I, I, it's, it's it's something that it's it's kind of hard to describe and the only thing i could come that comes close to it is when cole caulfield winds up for a shot (laughs) it's just that the the, everyone knows what's coming even the other team and everyone's just in awe of it and and that kind of the the kind of like the the hum of anticipation when the puck goes towards him for a one-timer on the power play especially early on in his canadians career uh is something that that i'll remember um for that And, and i'm gonna give a second answer is the, the the slight emotion he showed during the first home opener uh, when he was introduced. And I, I, you know, that home opener started with basically a video of the whole trade and everything that happened. And, and I think there was a part of Shea Weber because the emotions were so high after that trade. I, I feel like there's a part of Shea Weber that thought that he would never be welcomed in Montreal because of who he was traded for. And I think that moment when the crowd, you know, went, went, very you gave him an ovation that moment you can kind of see emotion on his face and he's not a man who shows a lot of emotion uh very often and, and it, i think it's fitting that his first time uh as a as a canadians player at the bell center showing emotion and unfortunately the last moment of his canadians career showing emotion um it, there's kind of symmetry there um but 
it, it that, that's what I'll remember from, from Shea Weber. For me, I, I got to pick something like super recent. Um, it, it was that, that one, nothing goal in game six against the Vegas golden Knights where he just kind of stepped in from the blue line and let go of one of his patented clappers and went top shelf with it. I mean, there's been a lot of great moments where he's had like some of those patented Shea Weber bombs from the point, but that one, because it was a series that nobody thought the Habs were going to win and they got into a game six at home with a chance to win it. And then, you know, the captain steps up knowing now that he did that with an injured thumb, injured knee, injured foot, injured everything. It makes it all that much better that he managed to step in and take that much, like take that kind of a bomb and, give the Habs a lead in a game to win a series that nobody gave them any chance of, uh, of winning. So in retrospect, that game six goal was honestly at this point, it's my favorite Shea Weber moment. My favorite moment is nothing uh, so much on the, uh, on the ice as, as when, when Max Pacioretty was traded, um, Mark Bergevin had already spoken a lot about, you know, the, the need to change the locker room dynamics um and Shea Weber has never been a vocal person he has never been anyone who you can really see what he means uh until you you know uh, until he's just he's just there and he's just leading by example and and once he was named captain uh, and it's uh, it, it Mark Bergevin was was very adamant about the fact that it was a it was a no-brainer choice to select Shea Weber as the next captain even though there were players like Brendan Gallagher and yeah, especially Brendan Gallagher, who a lot of people would have, would have liked to see as the next Canadians captain. Um, I remember like that very season, I think when, when, um, uh, when uh, Victor Mete was, he, he had started to cement himself on the Montreal blue line. And he started to speak about what Shea Weber had meant to him just as a mentor. And the fact that he could, come to Shea Weber's um, and his wife's house and, and eat um, and, and just become a part of the, you know, become a part of yeah, both the community and just see how to model yourself as an, as the ultimate pro. And it just, you know, as you, since you can't really see, and like with a PK Saban, you could always see him. You could, and, you know, special flamboyant uh, outfits and, and, you know, uh, with the way he spoke and everything, PK Subban was always in the center. And that was, you know, one type of leadership. Shea Weber is the total polar opposite of that. He's the, um, he's just leading by example every day, as you say, coming in first, leaving last. And I, I am, I'm quite certain that this whole, uh, playoff run we just witnessed wouldn't have been possible without the leadership of Shea Weber. He's obviously also been a, a hero for at least one player on the, on the team, and, and that is Alexander Romanov, who has had the chance to play with him now and, and maybe learn from him to build up his repertoire even more. But this causes a ripple effect if it comes down to the fact that, that Shea Weber actually is out for, for, for his career, but as Mark Branson is saying, for the rest of the season, for the upcoming season. Um, what can we expect in regards to trades uh, or, or acquisitions, or, or will they try to be filling uh, a void from within? There are talented D-men on, on the roster that could probably stop, step into a third pairing, and then you, you raise the other ones. What are your expectations here? I, I my, my expectation. This isn't necessarily what you what you said, but my expectation is that if if Philip Deneau does sign elsewhere, and the Montreal Canadiens want to bring him back, but at their price, and you know when when you go to the open market, that might not always be the case. My expectation is that they need to replace him somehow, and I, I don't think that they. I think they know uh, that Jesperi Kudkiniemi is not ready for that second center role, right? If you assume that Nick Suzuki is number one center. I, I think that they know, and they should know because he's not, that it's very Kotkaniemi is not number two center yet. So in, in that case, they need to replace him. And my, my question and, and what, I want, what I'm curious to see is how they do that because there are a lot of options out there. You know, there's a lot of centers that are available in free agency or in the trade market. And I'm still talking about Shea Weber. You are talking about Shea Weber, eh? 
Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> uh, <laughs> someone, someone else go ahead. I think they're going to go out and they're going to try to get somebody to replace him. I think Bergevin said, you know, there's no way that we can replace Shea Weber. I mean, you're not going to go out and find somebody with that size who does exactly what he does. Uh, so they're going to have to look at some other options, right? I don't know who they're going to be looking at because I think, you know, Jared went off and started talking about Deno. I think that's their main focus right now is trying to figure that out. So I don't think they've really made any concrete plans to replace Shea Weber because they didn't know until now that it was going to be something they had to do. So I think they're going to probably gauge the market, but Cracking. Patrick knows this better than anybody. We got a dark horse coming in in uh, Matthias Norlander next year who has an agreement that if he doesn't make the halves, he's going back to Sweden, but I think he's a dark horse. He's a puck mover. He would kind of change the dynamic a little bit. And maybe they bump somebody else up and they give a real look to Matthias Norlander. I don't know, but there, I think, I think the, the, the short answer is they haven't really gotten to planning for this because they didn't know they were going to have to until like, you know, a couple weeks ago. So uh, we'll see, but I think that's maybe one of their dark horse plans is let's see what this kid has coming over from Sweden and uh, maybe he cracks the lineup and gives us a dynamic that we didn't have before. So he doesn't replace Shea Weber, but he does, you know, some new things that we don't necessarily have. I wonder if the Canadians would have been interested in Jamie Olex Oleksiak if he had made it to free agency. Yeah, I think, I think that's that's a guy there as well. And, you know, the, the funny thing is, and the most telling answer from Mark Bergevin in his press conference is that they they're not afraid to add somebody with term. Because the expectation when you have Shea Weber and, you know, the all expectations that he's out for the season and who knows after that, but, you know, likely, you know, maybe a few years is that Mark Bergman said he's not scared to, you know, add somebody with terms. So then you kind of can look at somebody like an Alec Martinez uh, on who's a free agent, you know, someone like that. You know, I, I do think that the right side of the defense is definitely a an organizational need. And I think that Mark Bergman is aware of that. He even said so in his press conference saying, you know, yeah, we have Joel Edmondson and we have uh, Alexander Romanov who can play the right side, but we would like to add a right, right defenseman. So I, I definitely think that that's something they're going to have to look at. And obviously maybe plans shifted a little bit. Maybe some of the, the money that was, you know, earmarked for Philip Deneau is now going to have to go to, you know, not add a bottom pairing defenseman, but add a, a, a top, top four defenseman. But I also wonder if they just don't do this, and this is kind of against what they've done the last two playoffs, but go with a community approach. And, maybe, you know, it's going to be very hard to bring in somebody who can replace Weber's minutes minute for minute. So maybe you give Brett Kulak a few more minutes. Maybe you give Alexander Romanov a few more minutes. Maybe you give somebody like, you know, Matthias Norlander or, you know, even a guy like Corey Schooneman a few more minutes, you know, who, who's great in Laval last year. Uh, and, you know, obviously free agency and trades, you can bring somebody in. There, there's rumors like that as well. So I, I wonder if they don't try and replace Weber's minutes, minute per minute, but more go for somebody where they don't have to rely on a big four going forward. Well, you, you already started it and I'm not going to edit out everything you said, but uh, yeah, you, you mentioned Dano and, and, uh, maybe not coming back and, and how can you approach that with Kotkaniemi not being ready for, for the second line minutes or second center minutes. Um, where will you continue there? Yeah, I, you know, with, with the no, like I said, you have to replace him, right? So I, I do think, you know, this isn't like, you know, maybe it is similar to, to Radulov and Markov, But like I said on, on the last podcast is the problem, the, the, the thing that Mark Bergman did badly in that situation is not that he held strong with his cap negotiations or anything like that. What he did is he didn't replace them, right? They still haven't replaced Andre Markov. They still haven't, you know, it took them three years to, to replace Radulov with, with the Foley and, and Josh Anderson or, or whoever you want to put in there, maybe Thomas Tatar in that conversation. So in a way, they, it doesn't matter Philip Deneau needs to be replaced. Like, Philip Deneau is great. He's a great player. You know, it'd be great to keep him in Montreal, but not necessarily at high salary for long term. So you have to kind of replace him somehow, whether it's to get a better offensive top two center and then, you know, get somebody who can take the defensive minutes. Maybe it's, it's you know, there's a lot of options out there. Uh, you know, whether you want to, you know, get uh, a guy like Michael Granlund, 
Um, maybe trade for a guy like Nazem Kadri, who can take those defensive minutes. Uh, Blake Coleman is a UFA. Th- there are options out there. There's there's a lot of players. You know, Yanni Gord, who went to Seattle, would be a <laughs> obviously uh, a player like him would have been you know would have been ideal. So I, there's options because they don't have to replace Philip Dano's offense and defense. You can do that with like with Weber. You can do that with two different players. So it, it's going to be interesting what, what they decide, but it has to be done. That, that's something that has to be done. One thing yeah. that is lost in all of this is it's really Kale Flurry and, and being lost to Seattle. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I, a lot of people are disappointed with Kale Flurry because, you know, he came on, he was great with Laval um, in his first professional year. He made the NHL to start his second professional year. And, and the expectations were were high on him, and, and he's he he's a very good pro, he's a good prospect. You know, he, he's likely to play in the NHL. But if you're going to lose somebody to Seattle, that's the guy you want to lose. <laughs> you know, no, no offense to him, yeah. But but you know, good, you know, third pairing defensive prospects are are not that hard to find, and, and that's no disrespect to to Kale Fleury and what he brings to this organization, but look. You had to lose somebody. That that's an ideal thing to, to replace. I mean, look, Kale Flurry would have been what eighth or ninth on the Canadians' depth chart, and even with Shea Weber out. Like it, it's it it's negligible if you have to lose somebody. I mean, we, we were we were thinking, you know, Jonathan Drouin and Carey Price would be lost, and, and that makes a huge impact to your NHL roster. Kale Flurry doesn't do that. No, not at all. Uh, like you said, eighth or ninth on the depth chart, Max. I would say maybe even tenth depending on who you ask, right? He was not expected, if he didn't get selected by Seattle, to be on the opening night roster for the Montreal Canadiens, even if you take into account the fact that Shea Weber is not going to be playing next year. So if you, like, roll back to, like, the beginning of last season, and if you told everybody, okay, listen, for the expansion draft, the Montreal Canadiens are going to expose Jonathan Drouin, Carey Price, and Shea Weber without knowing any of the circumstances surrounding that. And then I told you, oh, but they're not going to take any of those guys. They're going to take Kale Fleury. You jump for joy and you'd be like, that's amazing. How is that possible? How many picks did we have to give them for that to happen? And then if I told you that the answer is zero picks, come on, you're, you're building Mark Bergevin a statue at that point because you have no idea what he did to make that happen, right? He must have had some kind of a side deal. I don't know. I... I don't know what Seattle was doing, honestly, overall, when I look at their expansion draft, but the fact that they passed over Drouin and Price to me is like, uh, you know what? Okay, more power to you, but they took somebody who, again, was probably ninth, eighth on our depth chart defensively. So the Habs lose essentially nothing, despite exposing people that could have been, as Jared said, major impact in terms of their loss on the roster uh, for opening night. So dumb luck for Montreal, whatever it is, I don't know, but they got to be thanking their stars that they didn't lose anybody important. Yeah, because it just feels as well that if you are Seattle, you want to uh, you want to get as many assets as possible, right? So it's not about 30 players you selected yesterday, but but what you got except for those. If you got like a draft choice extra to to not select a player, or if you are even just if you just stock up on uh, if you just stock up uh, stock up on uh, on a certain type of defenseman to be able to trade them um, a few days later or something, but here it just felt just felt like some of the choices didn't really add much of anything. If you get a twenty five year old who has mainly played in the AHL, um, it's difficult to get any sort of you know, valuable asset back for that in the future. So I don't really know what the Kraken are doing if they're just hoping to maybe tank for Shane Wright next year. Uh, but at this point, Kale Fleury is a fine player. I don't know if he was, I don't even think he made the top 10 on our uh, top 25 under 25 rankings last year. I think it was 11th or something. Um, so yeah, if you can keep a player like Carey Price who just who just basically showed that he still has the ability to any given day be the best goaltender in the world. And you can have keep a, a crafty uh, creative winger in Jonathan Duane, who seems to be doing better now. That's all fine by me. Yeah. You know, where, where this kind of hurts and, and where the people who are going to get upset about this get upset is because it's not just Kale Fleury, right? It's Victor Mete 
and it's Noah Jolson. And, you know, I think that that's a concern is that now you're in a place where Shea Weber is not going to be playing. And I'm not saying that Victor Metti or Noel Jolson would have jumped into that role, but you're at a point where you're going to need some defensemen. And, and, you know, Josh Brook is there, but, you know, it, it, I don't think he's ready to jump into the NHL, at least not for Shea Weber's minute. So, I, 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 you know, from an asset perspective, you know, you have to lose somebody. It's not like waivers in this case. But, you know, it's people are going to point to that. And it is a concern slight, slightly, especially on the right side, but it's not one that can't be fixed with an offseason. But there are also, yeah, I was going to say, like, there are also defensive prospects in the uh, in the pipeline. Mm-hmm. There is Matthias yeah. Norlinra, as we talked about. Uh, there is Josh Brook. There is a Jordan Harris and a Jalen Struble who are still playing with, is it Northwestern? Northeastern. Um, Northeastern. So, Northeastern, Gula, exactly. Right? Uh, yeah, Gooley, yeah, and Kaden Gooley. Gooley. Yeah. We can't forget about yeah. Kaden Gooley. Um, so, so yeah, it may they may be a few. Well, in in um, uh, in Norlinder's case, he's only a year younger than uh, Kaden Fleury, right? Yeah, I think yeah. So it shouldn't be to ha- it shouldn't have to be that big of a transition to go from those prospects. We have to remember as well that Noah Jolson is born 97. Victor Mete is born 98. So they are 23 and 24 years old and they haven't exactly shown um, anything more in their new environments than they did in Montreal. So I understand the, you know, push for panic button just on losing three defensive prospects for basically, yeah, for nothing in a year. But at the same time, there are new ones coming up through the lineup yeah. uh, or through the and, and worst case scenario, you would have lost maybe something even more important right. because you had <laughs> yeah. them back. Like they could have been claimed on, on uh, waivers or, or yeah. anything else. So, well, yeah, Kale, Kale Fleury would have needed waivers anyway. So, you know, mm-hmm. even if they do take somebody else, let's say they take, I don't know, Brett Kulak as an example, right? Then you lose an NHL player and then you probably still lose Kale Fleury on waivers <laughs> in, in October, right? So, yep. you know, yeah, it, I, I'm not saying it's it's a sound argument, but it, it's concerning when you lose so many players for nothing. But li- like, like Anton said, there's a reason for that it's because they have so much depth that eventually these guys are going to need waivers anyway. Like it's, it, it's a blessing and a curse of, of having a deep system is that eventually you get to a point where you lose guys for nothing. And, and it's, 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 a, it's not great optically. It doesn't look great. But at the same time, what, you know, it's better than the alternative when you're the guys who are trying to claim people <laughs> on waivers. Because yeah, you but it's think- also like it points to a difference, as, as we've been mentioning on the podcast since forever, uh, that a couple of years ago we needed every prospect to yeah. pan out. Now the pipeline is stacked. Exactly. So, you know, losing someone for free is not the end of the world. <laughs> Yeah, you don't you don't need to hang on to your prospects who may play third pairing minutes. You don't have to because there's like no. 17 who are <laughs> who are out there. And and if none of those 17 pan out, guess what? There's a bunch of unrestricted free agents who are probably going to fill that spot too. So you know it's it's not ideal. But listen, every team had to lose somebody. It's not like it's not like this is bad asset management. Uh, it could have been a lot worse for Montreal. Let's put it that way. And uh, according to Jesse Granger um, on Twitter, um, who writes for the uh, Athletic, um, they looked at value lost to Seattle, and um, Montreal is the third best team from 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 that perspective because they lost next to nothing, uh, whereas most other teams, what is it? Yeah, most other teams uh, lost a lot of value or. or yeah. Some value to Seattle Florida Panthers was the, the big loss that was 2.1, whatever, yeah, measurement. They yeah, had. no, it, it's it, exactly like, look, every team had to lose somebody. Montreal lost somebody that you know, in the long run or in the short term, anyway, will hurt Laval more than it will hurt them at the NHL level, and that's not a bad yeah. position to be in. Yeah, he's again wasn't expected to be on the opening night roster. Um, like you said, he's, he's replaceable. There's probably plenty of guys around the league. And plus, again, Norlander's coming over next year. If you stack up Flurry versus Norlander right now, I think Norlander's a more exciting option if you have to have uh, somebody internally, if you can't go out and get anybody else, right? Norlander obviously doesn't help Laval because if he doesn't make the Habs, he's going back to Sweden. But uh, again, it's another example. Like the Habs already have options internally that might be better than him as it stands. 
so that really like uh, that's interesting to know that they have them third uh, third best in terms of value lost because really Kale Fleury's only value is okay. You need multiple defensemen to get hurt before he gets into the lineup. It's been a massive day in regards to news. Free agency has just started, and trains has has started to come around as well. We got the draft coming up, and and we're gonna finish a little bit with the draft. Um, if anything else happens. Uh, directly when we finish recording this, we'll get on and 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 uh, talk about that as well. well uh, uh, just just, just first... to put people in the studio, um, we're we're at the point of the day on on Thursday where we're trying to figure out what the heck Carolina just did. So if <laughs> if, if, oh. if, if if anybody's wondering when we're recording this, I, we're, we're, I we're still if, trying to figure this out about, uh, on our end. If we're talking about <laughs> offer sheets, it seems like the Aho offer sheets has its first casualty, right? <laughs> yeah, th- this is why I was distracted talking about Philip Dano when when Patrick asked about Shea Weber. Just yeah. just so everyone knows. Yeah. Uh, but but looking forward to tomorrow's Friday Friday's draft and and uh, for for Anton and me Saturday night's draft. Um, mm. Is there any draft prospects that you have your keen eye on that, that you want to um, entertain the, the crowd listening to us? Yeah, who do we have? Um, out of the ones that I have written about, which is not a lot because as it happened, Montreal went all the way to the Stanley Cup finals and it became quite a compressed offseason before the draft. Um I am keen to see uh, where Francesco Pinelli ends up going. Uh, Kitchener Rangers center slash winger projects more as a winger in the NHL uh, because he's listed like everything from, well, basically in the early 20s to uh, to the late 30s. Um, it's going to be interesting to see if he makes it to pick 31 uh, where the Habs sit. It's going to be interesting to see if the uh, Canadians see something a little Nick Suzuki-like in, in Francesco Pinelli or if they just see, um, well, so, someone who's uh, dime on a dozen when it comes to, uh, well, what what he could bring to uh, to uh, uh, the Habs uh, talent pool on an you know NHL basis in the future. But uh, yeah, Pinelli is the one I'm more most interested in, except for... Uh, Obviously, it would be interesting. It would be fun if the um, if the Canadians would pick a Quebecois player just because there seem to be a few available at that range. But um, I have no real opinion in who that should be. You have also done some great work covering the Swedish prospects when I've been out this, this offseason. Uh, I need to credit you for that. I, I think it's been amazing. And feel free to listen to... Uh, you had one dispatch. I, I had one dispatch. So, yeah. so not that much. I haven't done that much. I'm not like you, Patrick. But, uh, but at least one interview with the HP seventy one under twenty coach Patrick Andersson. Yes. Yeah, Matt. You got any prospects you you keep an extra eye on for the draft? Well, as Anton mentioned, it would be interesting if they took a Quebecois player. And uh, I've been beating uh, online the drum for Xavier Bourgault from the uh, Cataract de Chamonigan. I saw him play a few times this year, only three or four times. Uh, he's arguably the most skilled player in the QMJHL. Uh, projections have him going somewhere in the mid-20s, mid to late 20s. So he might not be on that board, but he did fall two eyes on the prize when we did our mock draft for SB Nation, which was interesting to me because as soon as uh, Justin showed us the list and he's like, all right, so who are we taking? I was looking at who everybody picked and I'm like, oh my God, nobody took Xavier Bogo. We have to take him. And, and luckily enough, enough of the EOTP people agreed with me. So we ended up taking him as our pick. And I hope that and pray that he's on that board uh, when Montreal comes up to bat, because there's no way they haven't scouted him. Uh, I'd be shocked if he's on the board and he's not legitimately one of their considerations. It's going to depend on who else is there, right? If some other guys that are ranked really high end up sliding as a result of this draft being a crapshoot. Um, they might not go his direction, but I think if he's on the board, he'll be very high on the Habs list as well because he's super skilled um, and he's right in their backyard and showing again. So uh, yeah, that's my guy and uh, I'm sticking to it and I hope he's available when they're up to bat. It's Jared, you have obviously consolidated the, the draft prospect list. It's on the article for, for eyes on the prize as well. Uh, anyone stands out for you that you think can be value or, or, or that you think, is is ranked too low and Montreal might snag. Yeah, you know one one guy that that sticks out, and I don't know if if Lightning will strike twice, but it, it's funny that you look at the Xavier Borgo range in the consensus rankings. He's twenty four, 
my eye goes a little bit higher to number 23 in those rankings, and that's Logan Stankoven. And uh, if you talk about offensive talent, you know, he has tons of it. He has a shot. He has hockey sense. And uh, he's five foot eight. So Trevor, Trevor yeah. Timmons said uh, in his press conference on, on Thursday, he said that, you know, we're going to need some helps to, to get a guy that they really like. And, you know, one of those, one of those guys they got with those helps is Cole Caulfield uh, who, who kind of sounds a lot like uh, Logan Stankoven and, and doesn't have as, as good of a shot, doesn't have the scoring numbers that Caulfield did, but it, it, you know, a lot of people are screaming for size and that's, that's understandable. But when you, when you pick number 30 in the draft, you're not going to get a perfect prospect. So what you have to do is you have to try and find somebody with, you know, skills that you can work with and, and deal with the negatives. And, and that's the name that, that circles me because as much as NHL teams seem to be learning uh, and taking guys who, who not, maybe aren't, aren't the biggest, uh, he's a name that sticks out. And Montreal obviously hasn't shied away from taking those guys as well. Yeah. Personally, for me, uh, I've been following someone for about three years and, uh, it's uh, Victor Hanborg. Obviously, we're going to translate his name to Star Fortress, which means that it, he's absolutely awesome. I think he. this is someone I would be looking at to, to grab in second or third round if he's still around. Uh, I've heard very, very good things. He's a very smart player from what I've seen. He doesn't have the scoring numbers. Uh, and he is a little bit of a Kotkaniemi light, I would say. But he's a great center, uh, play solid when he's... In, an, in SHL, he, he actually won the championship with Vecra this year. So if you imagine a draft prospect that plays in AHL and, and, and wins the, the, the trophy there, uh, it is in a similar way. Even if he had limited minutes, he was part of the team. He played in overtime. He played in, in, in regular time. And he was part of a very successful SHL team. And while he's not ready to go to, to AHL or, or uh, NHL, I think he will benefit from two years maybe in Sweden and then go over. But it is one of those centers that projects very well. I think David Saint-Louis in, in Advice on the Price and Elite Prospect has him at 70% of becoming an NHLer down the line. And, and to not have that, he's a safe bet. Yeah. But I also think that it's a very interesting bet. And I would love it because, to be frank, I don't want to write about <laughs> Jacob Olofsson the whole year next season. So, so uh, I'm glad that we have Alexander Godin uh, in, in Russia and hopefully travel uh, restrictions will be a bit lighter and, and I might be able to cross over to Russia for a game or two to catch him. But, but it is... We're short on, on European prospects, and I would be happy to, to see something in Europe so the EPR gets uh, a little bit more interesting down the line. It, Obviously, this shouldn't bear an impact on Trevor Timmons, though. It, it, it's, funny, it's funny because, you know, uh, he, he is ranked 73 in our, in our consensus rankings right now, and, and the player ranked just above him at 72 is, is Red Savage, who is Brian Savage's son. So... Uh, I, I know Matt probably feels old as, as old as I do right now, uh, hearing, hearing that, <laughs> that Brian Savage's son is, is available uh, for the draft. But, you know, if he, you know, if he can play every other month, but October, uh, like his dad did, uh, he could be a, an interesting prospect as, as well uh, going forward. I think you have to also consider uh, the one guy that I've written about so far on prospects is uh, Zachary Budzuk from the Oceanic. Uh, Jared's article pointed out, you know, when he was doing his consensus rankings, that it was one of the highest variances of any of the players, right? He's ranked all over the place. He's ranked, you know, mid twenties. Some people have him ranked as low as the, as the sixties. So this is a guy that might slide into the second round and the Habs might be able to pick him up there, but he's also a guy who's projected by some people to go right around where the Habs are drafting in the first round. So he's in a, he's a guy who's like a super safe pick because he's not going to blow the doors off offensively. He's not like super crazy skilled or anything. He's not a Zavibol goal in terms of ability to uh, generate offense, but he played on a Ramouski team that lost um, Alexis Lafreniere and was their best player. Very good two-way player. Um, he's a guy that if you could scoop him up, I, I, I wouldn't really want the Habs to use him, uh, use the 30th overall pick to take him because I think there'll be better options. But if he can slide into the second round, 
there's a Quebecois player that they can take. That's a pretty safe bet of making the NHL. If I had to put a percentage on it, I'd say he's probably 80%. Is he going to be like a top line, like crazy? Is he going to be Patrice Bergeron? Probably not, but he has a very good chance of making the NHL and being an effective two-way player. So he's a guy, again, if he slides into the second round, I'd have my eye on him a hundred percent. Another guy from the Habs backyard too. So, so to speak, Ramuski's a little bit far. <laughs> It's funny because Trevor Timmons was asked about, you know, the guys in Quebec and how, you know, they were one of the few leagues to play uh, as much as they did, especially in Canada, compared to the WHL and, and obviously Ontario, who didn't play at all. And, and Trevor Timmons was was pretty frank. And he said, yeah, it's great that they, they play, but that means everyone else has seen them a lot, too. So so it, it doesn't make necessary things easier for Montreal to grab them, because in a year where uh, visibility of prospects was was not necessarily the high highest it has been uh everyone's been focusing on on quebec so it'll be interesting to see if that affects how many players from the queue have, have been drafted because that, you know that number has not necessarily been the highest uh, not just through montreal but but overall so it'll be interesting to see is there a chance for another romanov pick from from montreal this absolutely year? absolutely i think this year they kind of go off the board with their prospects right it's happened a lot in the past few years you know no one expected keaton Gooley to be the pick last year you know, it's, it's one of those things where, yeah, they, they, they go for, for home runs. They, they don't look for singles all the time. And uh, you know, sometimes it works out, sometimes it doesn't, but yeah, you know, especially 63, 64. Uh, I, I think the odds are, are relatively high that we get someone that we have no clue about heading into the draft, but like Roman, as long as it's not like another Nicholas Koberstein, I'm okay with it. All right. So they can, they can go off the board and draft somebody super small and skillsy. Just don't go after another gigantic dude named Nicholas that uh, nobody's ever heard of that plays in the OJHL or something. Hey, uh, you know, it doesn't matter our reaction on Saturday. All, all that matters is what happens in two, three years. So, you know, it, it doesn't, you know, they could pick uh, anybody they want, but uh, you know, the only bad pick is one that doesn't work out. Indeed it is. And we're looking forward to arguably one of the most interesting days for Montreal Canadiens uh, side eyes on the prize uh, of the year. And it is the draft weekend where everyone really piles in and the chat is high and low, mixed bag of emotions. I hope we can uh, do more, more of this during the draft, maybe even once a day, but we'll have to see what we can figure out. There is obviously a lot of stuff going into the website at that time. We're glad that you're listening to this. I'm, I'm glad that you've been listening for about an hour, which is one of the longest pods we've done in a while. It's all, we're also happy that you read us and uh, appreciate the fantastic work that the others do because sometimes I just still feel like I'm standing on the shoulder of giants and benefit from, from my colleagues. Um, once more, thank you for joining us. Thank you for listening. Guys, thank you for, for being part of this podcast and uh, over to the next one.